Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we're going to talk about the 2022 Nobel Prize for Physics, which has been won by a trio of experimental physicists for their work on quantum entanglement. But first, a word from our sponsor. Physics World's Nobel Prize coverage is supported by Oxford Instruments Nanoscience, a leading supplier of research tools for the development of quantum technologies, advanced materials, and nanoscale devices. Visit nanoscience.oxinst.com to find out more. This week, Alain Aspect, John Clauser, and Anton Zeilinger won the 2022 Nobel Prize for Physics. And the prize citation reads, for their experiments with entangled photons, establishing the violation of Bell's inequalities and pioneering quantum information science. Later in the podcast, we'll hear from David Kaiser, a physicist and historian of science, about why the trio's work is part of a trend that began in the 1960s, with physicists exploring some of the weirder aspects of quantum theory. Now, I'm joined by my colleagues Margaret Harris and Mateen Durrani to talk about this year's winners. Margaret, entanglement is at the heart of the 2022 Nobel Prize. Can you give us a simple explanation of what entanglement is? So entanglement is something that many physicists will come across, but that doesn't necessarily mean you you understand it. And if you don't understand it, you're in good company because Einstein didn't understand it either. And in well, fact, that, that sounds think, good to me. Yeah, <laughs> and didn't actually think it was necessarily a part of, of physical reality or, or wasn't the full picture, I guess. So when two particles, which are, could be photons, it could be electrons, atoms, up to sort of small molecules, I think, that have, have been done, when two particles are entangled, they have a relationship in their physical properties that is much closer than it would be with two non-entangled or classical parties, uh, classical particles, that is. Um, so it's a little like, you know, if you have uh, one entangled particle here in, in Bristol, another one over in, uh, I don't know, in, in China, uh, if you know the state of the particle in Bristol, then you automatically, even without checking, know what the state is of the particle that's in China, if the two particles are entangled. So, um, you know, particles, depending what the particles are, this entanglement could be expressed as spin up and spin down. So the particle in Bristol is spin up, you know, the particle in China is spin down. Um, or it could be um, zero or one quantum states, or it could be horizontal or vertical po- polarization of light. And it's possible to create these entangled um, states in the laboratory. Uh, for example, you can make entangled photons by firing a laser beam through a certain type of nonlinear crystal. And so quantum theory has a lot to say about um, entanglement. But what this trio did, these Nobel laureates, new Nobel laureates, is that they confirmed the existence of quantum entanglement. How did they do that? Well, so some physicists back in the 20th century, including, as I said, Albert Einstein, didn't like this idea of entanglement. They thought that it violated the laws of cause and effect you know, how can the state of a particle here in, in Bristol 
influence the state of a particle in China or even on the other side of the galaxy. Um, and they suggested that there might be something hidden locally within the entangled photons that was somehow telling them what state to be in. And uh, what, um, what these three physicists did, and actually following on from the work by another physicist, John Bell, what they did is to basically show that if the world did have these local hidden variables governing what entangled particles would do, then uh, certain experiments wouldn't come out the way that they actually did. So they, they showed that there, there couldn't be these local hidden variables governing what states and entangled particles could be in. And they did this through a, a series of very clever um, sort of uh, quantum optics experiments, uh, you know, involving sending light through these nonlinear crystals, splitting them into, into uh, two, two entangled photons, and then detecting what state they're in after various manipulations have happened. And, and so uh, John Clauser, one of the new Nobel laureates, did this first in the 1970s. But he did it with a bit of, there was a bit of a loophole. There could have been something about the experiment that might have meant that entanglement wasn't the whole picture. What Alain Espey did then was to close some of those loopholes and the, in, the, in the 1980s. And then Anton Zeilinger in the 1990s and even up to, to the present day, has just been closing more and more loopholes so that we're now very clear that entanglement really is what's describing the behavior of these uh, two entangled particles. And Mateen, uh, John Bell plays a, a central role in this Nobel Prize. Who, who was John Bell? Yeah, John Bell, I mean, he, he's not alive anymore. He died in 1990. He died quite young, at, well, relatively young at the age of about, I think he was 62. And um, as you say, this prize, the Nobel Prize this year, is very much linked to his life. I mean, he was he was born in 1928 in uh, Northern Ireland. Um, he was actually known as John Stuart Bell, and his, his, his family used to call him Stuart until he went to university, then he became John. And he went to Queen's University in Belfast, and he was you know, an exceptionally talented uh, young person at the time who was known as the prof to his family because he was so intelligent. He used to spend all his time in the library in Belfast, um, you know, amassing information. And um, he, did, he went to Queen's and he got a first in mathematical physics. So he was very, very talented. Um, and then afterwards, he actually went into accelerator design and development. You know, this was the 50s. This was where Particle accelerators were the great new thing that we could finally sort of test and look for the building blocks of matter. And he, he initially started out at the UK Atomic Energy Agency in, in Oxfordshire. And then he had spells in Malvern and then at the University of Birmingham. And then he ended up at CERN, which is where he spent most of his career, um, actually as an accelerator physicist and a particle physicist. Um, and very much quantum physics, which he'd originally been exposed to in, Bel in Belfast, was his hobby. And he wasn't really happy with the way it was taught in Belfast. Um, you know, there was very much this sort of shut up and calculate view of quantum physics. Just don't think about it too hard. Don't worry about the sort of implications of it. But he wasn't ha happy with that. And um, very much quantum physics was his sideline. And in the early 60s, he spent a year at um, Stanford, at the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. And it was when he was there that he did um, his famous papers that um, came up with this concept of Bell's inequality, which is a way of sort of testing that quantum physics is correct or not. And Margaret Mateen mentioned that um, 
that John Bell died m- many years ago. Um, and so, of course, he can't be honored um, in, in this Nobel Prize. Do you, do, do you think that, that he deserved um, a Nobel Prize? Um, and if he were alive today, would, would the Nobel Committee somehow find a way for him <laughs> to share this prize? I think they probably would, or they might have split the prize into um, several different ones. You know, John, you, you could have given a, a prize to John Bell for, and uh, Clauser and Aspey for, for proving John Bell's equality is cor- correct. Um, and then you could have given a separate prize for manipulating quantum information to Anton Zeilinger and perhaps some other physicists we could name. Um, but I think that there's, there's some interesting historical reasons, which I'll, I'll go into with, with David Kaiser later, about why... It, it took so long, really, for this, this work to be recognized because it was spread out over a you know, whole bunch of uh, several decades, really. And, and Margaret, quantum physics has really seen a huge renaissance um, in the past few decades. And a lot of that's been driven by technology, the development of quantum computers and sensors and cryptography systems and things like that. Um, has the work of uh, Aspey, Clauser and Zeilinger um, played a role in this rebirth? It absolutely has, because, I mean, what Aspey and Clauser did following on from Bell was to really prove that entanglement is a, is a real part of a real explanation for what's going on with these, these correlated particles. And, you know, if, if entanglement is real, then we can use it. There's no point trying to make a device that relies on entanglement if entanglement doesn't exist. So in that sense, definitely, yes, that their, their work is foundational to all the technologies you mentioned that rely on quantum entanglement. Um, there are different ways of using quantum entanglement. Um, one of them relies on the fact that entanglement is, is very fragile and easily disturbed. So you've got two entangled photons. They can be... Uh, disturbed or made to decohere in the, in the language of physics um, by a magnetic field, for example, or by gravity. And that means that if you can detect whether these photons are entangled or not, then you can use that fact to make very sensitive measurements of magnetic fields or gravity. And this is what quantum sensing is all about. And they have applications in medical imaging, uh, measuring the tiny magnetic fields in your brain, for example, and in civil engineering, so detecting pipes and tunnels underground so you don't have to go digging to find them. And I think we've, we've spoken on the podcast about these, these technologies before. Um, but so that's quantum sensors, but another application is in quantum computing because entangled photons um, or atoms or other quantum objects can be used to perform c- computations in a way that's totally different from the way that traditional computers did this. And Anton Zeilinger was actually instrumental in in showing that you could um, you could uh, teleport quantum states from one set of entangled photons to another particle, um, and in do this teleportation even across great distances, which is actually the only way of, of of completely reproducing a quantum state without sort of measuring it first. So that's very important. And, and Mateen, we, we, we were chuffed around the office, weren't we? Because um, th- this prize is a rare example of, of the physics world team actually predicting the winners, um, at least in broad strokes. I mean, I think I'm sure Anton Zeilinger's name was mentioned um, just before the, the prize was announced by, uh, by one of our physics world colleagues. So, so why, why did we get it right this time? Why, why did we see this prize coming? Um, you know, particularly because some of the work was done a very long time ago. 
Well, I'd like to think we were sort of great soothsayers, but you know what it's like, Hamish, we sort of um, make a whole load of predictions. And I guess if you make enough predictions over enough time, eventually one of, one of them will come right. Um, we've been banging on about quantum physics for years. I mean, you did that great infographic a few years ago, Hamish, looking at the different fields within physics that um, the physics prize has gone to. And I think the last time the quantum physics one was 2012. But before that, there'd been a huge gap until the early 50s before anything linked to quantum physics had, had won. So simply on the grounds that it was so many years that uh, it hadn't been awarded, we felt that you know this was, the time was ripe. And um, the funny thing is about the Nobel Art Prizes, you never know. for You have to wait 50 years until the archives open up to see who came up with the nominations. And you know, so we'll have to wait until 2072 uh, to find out who who nominated Zeiling and Co for this prize. But I have a funny feeling they may have received many nominations over the years, and and maybe the feeling was that now the time is ripe with the, some of the developments that Margaret mentioned. Um, so yeah, we had predicted these this trio, um, but yeah, I think if you make enough predictions, one of them will come right eventually. And so, Mateen, do you um, do you see any more Nobel Prizes in, in quantum physics coming up? Definitely. I mean, it's not going to be next year and it probably won't be the year after. I mean, the Nobel Committee like to sort of pad these things out and it's very unusual to have back-to-back -back prizes in the same field. So um, certainly, you know, we could... Um, I know whenever we talk... I mean, you've talked to the people from the Nobel Committee. They do a pretty good job of coming up with the right people they're pretty oh, assiduous. Um, exhaustive process. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but I know, you know, not having looked into it in great detail, we know that there are loads of really good people out there. And, you know, we, we report on their work, we cover their work. Um, and so there's probably a whole bunch of other people that um, are in the running. And of course, beauty of the Nobel Prize is they do take that very long term look and they make sure they want to get it right. So it's often the case that prizes, you do have to wait quite a while um, but there's been so much work over the last 10, 20 years that there's bound to be other people. I think that to add, add one note to that is that um, although the Nobel, Nobel Committee, I think, do take their jobs very seriously, they are prone to a whole host of, of biases, not least of which is longevity bias, because, you know, um, it's perfectly possible that John Bell could have lived, I think he would have been 93 or 94 had, had he lived, um, but he didn't. He died at 62, and so he didn't win the Nobel Prize. And of course, we've talked before about how uh, certain researchers from underrepresented groups in, in physics have, have not had their work recognized either by the Nobel Committee or by others. So I think there is a, a fair amount of, of luck and, and uh, sort of human, human bias in the prize. Unlike science itself, you know, um, giving prizes for science isn't an objective process at all. Well, that's that, that, that's a great point, Margaret. And um, let let's stop there with our our chat about um, about the Nobel prizes this year. And uh, up next, um, Margaret speaks with David Kaiser, uh, and they take an in depth look at the history behind this year's Nobel Prize. David Kaiser is a physicist and historian of science at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the author of several books, including How the Hippies Saved Physics, Science, Counterculture, and the Quantum Revival, which was, incidentally, Physics World's Book of the Year in 2012. Hello, David. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Uh, thanks so much for having me. So as soon as it was announced earlier this week that the Physics Nobel Prize was be being given for research on entanglement, 
I immediately thought of your book because it really digs into the history of quantum entanglement as an idea. How did that history begin? Well, it, it's a, it's I think a really remarkable history, um, and it's a long one by now. So it stretches back uh, almost a hundred years to the early, early days of quantum theory itself. So. When we look back, knowing what we know now, we can find hints or anticipations of what we would now recognize uh, as the notion of quantum entanglement, really from very early in the days of quantum theory. But as I'm sure many, many listeners know, uh, the, the notion really became most kind of concrete, made most explicit uh, in a body of work in 1935. So that's not quite 100 years ago, but it's, it's going back there a ways. And uh, one of the most important um, uh, contributions in that direction was uh, by Albert Einstein and two of his younger colleagues, uh, Boris Podolsky and Nathan Rosen. Uh, and the paper, of course, is so famous, we now refer to it just by the author's initials, the so-called EPR paper, published in, uh, in May of 1935. Uh, and it was um, those three authors who really helped identify uh, what would be sort of at stake conceptually uh, if quantum entanglement were a required prediction of quantum theory on the one hand, and even more troubling to Einstein and his colleagues, if the world actually seemed to behave that way. So there were kind of two sides to this. One is, is this something that quantum theory is, so to speak, trying to tell us? And then even perhaps even more importantly, no matter what quantum theory says, is that just true of the world? And so Einstein and his colleagues ultimately came down to suggest it looked very much like quantum theory said these things should be true. And that, that for them, they took that as a reason not to be so excited about quantum theory, to say maybe that means the entire edifice is heading off in a bad direction. Uh, and it turns out, by the way, that very same year in 1935, another really major architect of quantum theory, Aaron Schrodinger, also began writing a, a number of articles uh, on, on this notion of entanglement. In fact, it was Schrodinger who coined the term entanglement in English. He had by then just um, uh, fled Berlin. He was at that point working in the UK, writing in English. And so he actually coined the English language term entanglement also in 1935. And also, by the way, uh, in a series of articles that showed Schrodinger himself, like Einstein, was getting a bit more uncomfortable with some of the implications of the work that, that he and Einstein and the others had done so much to put together. So I understand that the, after this paper was published, this EPR paper, um, there was then a bit of a debate between some of the other fathers, mostly fathers in this case, mm -hmm. of quantum yeah. mechanics and, and Einstein backed up by Podolsky and Rosen. What's it, what was that debate centered on? Right. So, so the EPR paper, it's, it's really remarkable. It's only four journal pages. Uh, they, pack a, they pack a lot into a pretty short space. Uh, I'm sure their editors would, would have been happy. Not, not many stray words. And so they're also very explicit, even literally in, in the opening paragraph, of what they consider the kind of main conceptual stakes to be. They're very explicit uh, to their credit. And so they identify two kind of um, features of any theory that they would consider kind of reasonable or, or a, a plausible candidate to be a good theory of nature. They have two distinct kind of criteria uh, that they want to um, uphold. And the first is what they call the reality criterion. That's their own words. Uh, they're really talking right from the start about the nature of reality, very kind of heady terms. And the, the reality criterion, as they see it, is to, to paraphrase 
that any successful theory of physics should be describing nature as it is, regardless of whether people happen to choose to measure or observe one thing or another. So speaking, you know, again, a bit more loosely, they were basically saying that a successful physical theory would be able to describe properties of things in the world as they are on their own, not merely as they might be revealed when we happen to kind of interact with them, perform a measurement, stub our toe on them or whatever. That nature has its properties period, and we do our best to describe those properties as they already were, not merely as revealed when we ask questions. So they call that the reality criterion. So, so in this case, sort of um, little bits of matter skittering around in the world, they should be in a sense carrying with them on, on their backs, so to speak, definite values for a whole range of properties. The electron has a value of spin along the x direction, even if we happen to not to measure. It's that kind of notion that they're really very, very um, explicit about. And the other very important uh, kind of um, property that they want to uphold in any successful theory comes to be called uh, locality or local causality. It has many similar names. And that's, again, a not surprising one to hear, given that Einstein was one of the authors of this work. That's the criterion that nothing should be able to travel arbitrarily quickly across space. No bit of matter, no force, no information, no cause. That basically local causes have local effects. If I, if I perform a measurement over here, it must take some time for anything, any information, any, any disturbance, anything coming from that local action to propagate further through space. So you combine those two things together for many years, that conjunction of properties was called local realism. Now the, the specialists in the literature usually shy away from that term, but, but that, those are the two criteria that, that Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen were, were holding up as a kind of, um, almost a kind of litmus test, uh, start, starting all the way back in that paper from 1935. And so other scientists did sort of challenge the idea because it seemed to be that, that quantum physics was, was saying that this local reality would, wasn't necessarily a whole story or might not even be part of nature at all. That's right. Some of them argued it might be too much of the story, so to speak. They might be asking too much of a successful theory of, of, of nature. And so this was at the time when Einstein was talking, you know, avidly with people like very dear friends of his, like Niels Bohr. They were kind of friendly rivals. They got along very well, even though they disagreed on almost everything regarding physics. But they were, they were just, you know, I think they delighted in, in the debate. Uh, and they really remained um, personally very friendly uh, throughout their lives. But they just had these drawn out, decades long, drawn out um, kind of friendly debate. So Bohr was a favorite kind of sparring partner, conceptual sparring partner of Einstein's and, and others, the younger Werner Heisenberg and really soon a, a larger group. And so people like Bohr began to argue in response to these um, uh, arguments by, by, say, the EPR authors. Bohr would say, who's to say that nature has to have the properties we, we hope it does? Who's to say that every little bit of matter ha carries around its own complete set of properties, even if we happen to measure it? How would we know? What we can learn about nature is when we interact or even sort of intervene and ask it questions, so to speak, perform measurements, interact with it. So Bohr was being a bit more, I don't know if we'd say cagey or just concerned about uh, requiring too much, uh, kind of fooling ourselves about what a successful or proper theory of, of physics would look like. And so I like to think of Bohr's response as, be, as being as if, you know, ordinarily I would think that people walk around the world with a definite value of their weight. 
They okay. might not know what it is, but they have a value of their weight, we would plausibly assume. But Bohr's position was more like saying that a person literally doesn't have any definite value of their weight until they step on a scale. It's not that they had a value and didn't know it. It's that they simply didn't have a definite value for that particular property until they acted to measure it. And that's a, that's a very, very different conception of what a proper explanation of physics should be like compared to the one that Einstein and indeed many others were, were holding out for. So what you described there is, is a philosophical or maybe a metaphysical debate, but the Nobel Prize Committee does. There isn't a Nobel Prize for metaphysics or philosophy. How did this debate then evolve into something you could actually test or experiment on? You're, you're right. I mean, the Nobel Prize uh, famously skips many, many interesting and valuable fields of study, including <laughs> metaphysics and, and the long list beyond that. So you're right. And indeed, you know, it, um, and by the way, this was a debate uh, among mostly no, or largely Nobel laureates at the time. They'd already won their prizes, many of them. So, so they were... Uh, they, they were in that category, so to speak, for other reasons. Anyway, you're right. So, so this was a debate between Einstein and Bohr and, of course, a, a wider circle of colleagues. And it was a debate that literally lasted 20 years. It ended when Einstein died. It didn't end when one convinced the other. Einstein passed away in the mid-50s. Bohr lived a few years later until 1962. They both, alas, went to their graves, having never, you know, um, so to speak, won the debate conclusively. Uh, and because it, it was partly because it really did seem to be in this realm of kind of um, um, conceptual debate, philosophy, maybe even a bit of aesthetics. And that's really where the, where the discussion sort of ended um, over, over the course of nearly 30 years uh, in that phase of, of the discussion. And then very soon after Bohr passed away, uh, already then by 1964, the discussion began to take a pretty exciting new direction. And that was thanks largely to the work of a much younger physicist, John Bell, uh, raised originally in Northern Ireland, made most of his career um, at CERN. So Bell had grown up uh, in physics really after the Second World War, after the days of those very exciting, heady debates of the 1920s and 30s. And he was really very, um, you know, kind of unimpressed, frankly, by what he considered a kind of pat answer that his, te his physics teachers would give him to the kinds of questions that people like Einstein, Schrodinger, and Bohr had considered vital questions. So it wasn't that he didn't necessarily like the answers his teachers gave, he didn't even like the fact that they, they dismissed this largely even as a relevant question. And that wasn't sort of good enough for Bell, like I'd say to, to his great credit. He, he learned physics very well. He went on to a remarkably successful career in areas of, of uh, high energy theoretical physics. But all along, literally from his student days, he kept coming back kind of uh, on, on his off hours to these deep questions about the nature of quantum theory and ultimately what do we, what do we hope for in a, in, a, in a proper description of nature. And so it was in the course of that sort of decade and a half long ruminating, he had a, a couple conversation partners, always kind of on the side, a kind of hobby on the side for him. Um, and in the course of that, he, he introduced what we now rightly celebrate as one of the landmark articles in the history of science, in, of all of science. I, mean, I like to say since the earth cooled, not just the last 50 or 60 years, over the huge long span of, of, of say, the physical sciences, Bell's article, I think now really will stand up as in that level of, of, of importance. It certainly was not seen that way at the time. So his article um, was actually called On the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen Paradox from the title at 
itself, he was signaling he was really wanted to revisit those debates from, from almost 30 years earlier. It was published uh, in, a, in not the typical physics journals of its day. It was published in the very first volume of a, of a kind of ambitious and quirky new journal that, alas, didn't, didn't last very long. It had a triple name. It had one word in three languages, physics, physique, physica. Uh, and it was really trying to encourage kind of broader, today we might say out-of-the-box thinking uh, about ideas in, in modern physics. And Bell published there partly because he didn't think that the main community would, would welcome this kind, of, this kind of work, and he wasn't wrong about that estimation. So it's kind of buried on the shelves in this fascinating but out-of-the-way journal. It's another deeply elegant brief article. This one runs only six journal pages. It's not very long. And that's the one in which Bell demonstrates uh, very, very briefly and succinctly that quantum entanglement is an unavoidable consequence of quantum theory. That really settles. There's no way to get out of that if one's going to ascribe to quantum theory otherwise. That's step one. And step two, quantum theory absolutely is not compatible with this pair of kind of criteria that the EPR authors had articulated. Like it or not, quantum theory simply is not compatible with this notion of, of realism and locality. Uh, and again, that didn't prove that those that those criteria were wrong, it proved that there's a showdown. There's something really that's not going to fit at the end of the day. And then the most, I think, most compelling part of Bell's very brief article is that he actually introduces, at least in a kind of cartoon or schematic form, I like to say he was a theorist. It's what an experiment looks like to a theorist. It's like a cartoon, but a very compelling cartoon that he introduced in that paper of, of an in-principle type of experiment that could actually try to tell the difference could try to have an experimental data-driven discussion about whether quantum theory provides an accurate description of nature or whether a theory, some different theory that is consistent with locality and realism, whether that actually describes real experimental data better. So he provides a concrete scenario, things to try to measure in a lab that could try to be more than just late night kind of cigar smoke filled uh, discussion between the folks like Einstein and Bohr. And so then you know, the idea is that, that uh, John Clauser, Alan S. Bay, and later Anton Zeilinger, the three scientists who won the Nobel Prize, then did take this, this cartoon idea of an experiment and, and put it into reality in some sort of way. But, um, and the, you know, the, the, the Nobel Committee paid tribute to Bell in their uh, statements about the, the prize as well. But the, the significance of Bell's work, you said, wasn't really recognized at the time. It was published in this obscure journal. And Actually, even Clauser's work and Aspey's work, to some extent, weren't really recognized at the time either. Why was that? You know, why did it take so long for entanglement studies, I guess you could call it, to gain traction? You're right. And again, it's, I mean, thank goodness that, that uh, Clauser, Aspey, Tyler, and of course many of their colleagues uh, were able to enjoy the recognition much, much later, including now sort of, in some sense, ultimate recognition with the Nobel Prize. But you're right, it was a long time in coming. And Bell tragically died fairly young. He died in 1990. Uh, and by that point, there was a robust community, though still a small one that was devoted to this, but it was still nowhere near kind of central to physics by the time he had passed away. And uh, unfortunately, things like the Nobel Prize are not given posthumously. So 
so you're right. There was a, there really was a decades long shift. It wasn't just overnight. Someone said, now we get it. We better change our minds about the importance of this topic. So uh, Clouser happened to really stumble upon uh, John Bell's article by accident, browsing in the library as a graduate student, as he later recalled. And as far as he said, it was the kind of funny looking name on the spine of this bound, you know, volume one of this journal, two or three years after that first volume had been published, that Clouser was just like, what's that all about? At least as he later recalled. And he pulled it off the shelf and, and sort of, uh, thank goodness for the future of the field, <laughs> the, the journal ultimately opened, fell open to, to the page of Bell's articles. Really astonishing. So, so this was an accidental uh, stumbling upon on the case of Clauser. He excitedly brought this paper to his thesis advisor. He was a grad student at Columbia at the time. As John later recalled many times, his advisor said, that you don't want to get involved with that stuff. That is, to paraphrase, you know, merely philosophy. That was, very, that was meant to be very denigrating at the time. Instead, you know, if you want a job in this field, work on a more mainstream um, topic, which Clauser then, uh, then did and did very well, completed his thesis and moved on to a postdoc. But again, much like Bell himself, this, the, the, this idea of entanglement and now of a kind of roadmap that Bell had provided of trying to do a real experiment, that really lodged in Clauser's imagination and he kept coming back to it again in his own off hours. He connected again somewhat, uh, almost accidentally, with a small circle of, of colleagues like Abner Shimoni and Michael Horn, who also had found this paper kind of by accident. They began really helping, uh, working together. Uh, I want to you know, say this was never only Clauser, but it was, he was really driving this, uh, this, this forward, helping to with, with a small circle of friends. And then a few years later, uh, by 1972, he was able to complete the, the world's very first laboratory test of Bell's inequality, working with a then grad student Stuart Friedman, and they published in Physical Review Letters, the, you know, the, one of the top flight journals in the field, uh, and their response was was really just a collective shrug. That's the, just the best way to put it. The worldwide citations to Bell's article before that, before the Friedman Clauser experiment was published, had been just a trickle per year. That trickle fell by half the year after the first experiment. This was just not, you know, uh, lighting up the world um, as as we now, in hindsight, say, you know, it probably should have. And so Clauser, you know, is he's a, a wonderful, amazing experimentalist, and also, frankly, to his credit pretty stubborn. You know, he wasn't about to stop. Uh, it didn't do his career any favors. And again, he's been very, he's written very clearly and movingly about that himself. He just couldn't let go. I mean, again, again, I think to his credit, he just was, he wanted to really see how could the world work. Uh, and that was not always a very good career move in those days. And yet he stuck to it. So let me fast forward. 10 years later, Alain Aspey, uh, just outside Paris, has a very similar set of experiences. In fact, Aspey had been starting around the same time, going back to the early and mid-1970s, also just captivated by, by, uh, by Bell's paper and the promise of a real experiment or a series of experiments to do. He's also given kind of cover by a small number of influential physicists who say, that's okay if you want to do that, even though they all knew this wasn't um, you know, mainstream stuff. Aspey and a small team do an even, frankly, more impressive experiment, and they publish 10 years after uh, Clauser and Friedman. They published in 1982. It is an astounding, astounding virtuoso experiment that they complete and publish. And again, the reaction is, 
that's nice, you know, to, again, to paraphrase. Uh, a few people get excited, but it does not turn the field around. I, I, I wrote about this briefly in, in the book you had mentioned. You know, worldwide citations to Bell's theorem doubled the year or two after the Aspe experiment. But if you go in and look a little more carefully, what really happened was the people, the small people, number of people who were already writing about Bell's theorem, they wrote more papers, right? So the number of articles doubled. The author pool kind of didn't, you know, or certainly didn't double. And so it's not like that convinced, you know, the whole field to now take entanglement seriously either. And again, Aspe has, has, has said so uh, himself, and, and he, he and I talked a bit about it when I was working on the book. He found this reaction, again, pretty, pretty tough, pretty frustrating. Uh, and so he actually uh, turned his interest to other subfields of physics, did brilliant work in other areas, partly because he figured this is just not where the field, you know, is going to pay attention, even after his beautiful, amazing, you know, virtuous experiment. Zeilinger, Anton Zeilinger, with whom I've worked most closely, and he's become really very a, a dear colleague, he has very similar stories, that he was starting out in this in the 70s, and especially now throughout the 1980s. He was hooked on this. Uh, he still describes feeling almost kind of giddy when he first encounters ideas like e papers like EPR and Bell. This just grabbed these people and it wouldn't let go. And that certainly included Seilinger. He had some amazing mentors uh, who, who, again, provided inspiration and a kind of cover. It's okay to work on this. Uh, and in the face of otherwise a kind of skepticism or ambivalence, he, he, he plowed forward as well and did, again, as we know, just a series of of what I consider just breathtaking um, uh, experiments, you know, uh, over over decades and decades, really right up to the present. So each of those folks were 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 working on increasingly clever, increasingly frankly ingenious ways to try to test Bell's inequality, while closing off more and more kind of what are often called loopholes, uh, little kind of. Um, uh, uh, funny little scenarios that would be consistent with an Einstein-like theory, that would be consistent with the criteria that EPR had, articulate, had articulated, that would be different from quantum theory, and yet still might be able to, able to account for the really striking correlations that are measured in all these Bell tests. And uh, that's really what drove uh, Clauser and Aspe, and that really, in some sense, was what Zeilinger then ran with for, for much of his career, to try to close more and more loopholes with more and more, frankly, ingenious experimentation. Now, you talk a lot about the resistance that came from uh, the rest of the, of the quantum community, or if not resistance, then at least just disinterest. Why was there so much resistance and disinterest to this, this idea? It's a great question. I think I think there were a lot of reasons, which is probably why it didn't change overnight. It wasn't just one one ingredient, so to speak. Uh, one of them that really interests me, and I've written a, a fair about a fair bit about in in uh, in how the hippies say physics in my more recent book, Quantum Legacy. Something's been on my mind um, for quite a while. Are these kind of broad scale generational shifts that, at least with hindsight, we begin we can begin to kind of map out uh, in the in the physics community over over a span of say a century or so, over long time scales. And as we were talking about earlier, in the early days of the 20th century, the time that led to things like the creation of quantum theory, those heady debates all night uh, between folks like Einstein and Bohr, which were deeply emotional. There was name calling. There was you know people hounding people at their bedside when they were sick. I mean, it's dramatic stories. Um, and and uh, this was stuff felt with great passion. It was also a time when many, many of, the, of those leading physicists, not all, but many of them, considered part of the job of a physicist to be in some sense a philosopher, or at least to engage overtly 
in an effort to make sense of the equations or the experimental data and not only check for something like mathematical self-consistency. That their, their self-conception, we might say, was at least in part to engage in a philosophical vein, not to be an actual professional philosopher, but remember many of these folks, certainly in Central Europe, many of them had studied formal philosophy as high school students. It wasn't like they were just doing this you know, on the side. They, their, their upbringing as young scholars had included a range of skill sets, including mathematics, including for some experimental design, and including languages, philology, and philosophy, and, and other things. Heisenberg famously was the son of a classicist. Bohr had done basically undergraduate, mentor, uh, was a kind of undergraduate advisee of a, of a neo-Kantian philosopher. This is how they grew up, uh, many of them. And so it, that, they saw that as not their whole job, but part of their job. Even actually in the United States and to a lesser degree in the UK, there was an, an appreciation of the need for some kind of philosophical engagement with quantum theory. They often appealed to different philosophical traditions. They weren't reaching to the kind of German idealists, maybe we'd say for obvious reasons. They were reaching for a kind of American pragmatism. But even people like uh, Robert Oppenheimer, like the folks who wrote the early English language textbooks, uh, many of them uh, in the US especially, in the 30s, they also had explicit kind of essay question prompts that we would consider kind of philosophical or conceptual. So it wasn't only the kind of central European group. The point is in that era, part of what many leading physicists considered the role of the physicist was something like a, um, uh, we might recognize as philosophical questioning. Okay. And then that changed really fast. And it changed partly, I think, largely because of worldly affairs including the, the onset uh, of the Second World War. And of course, as listeners will know, the Second World War had an enormous impact on, the, on physics and physicists and many engineers in many areas of the natural sciences uh, beyond that. And for many physicists in particular, this was uh, a taste to, uh, an introduction to a different mode of, of getting the work done. Very, very scary times, very explicit time pressures. We have to get this done immediately. There's no time to lean back and, and argue, you know, uh, fancy philosophical, um, you know, chestnuts. My, one of my dear mentors, Sam Schraber, uh, who was a physicist and, and turned to history of science, he used to say, characterize that era as get the numbers out. If you're working on radar and you're worried about nightly bombardments, your job as a young physicist is not to worry about the subtleties of Maxwell's equations. Your job is to get the numbers out and improve the next you know, device to, to, to set out into the field. I mean, that kind of mindset, of course, similarly with the, with the nuclear weapons project and, and dozens of, of, of kind of practical defense-oriented projects as well. And that a lot of that new orientation was carried over, sometimes quite purposefully, uh, after the end of the war, that this was in many ways um, a highly successful approach to physics. Um, that is that people could work in new kinds of teams, they could bring various kinds of exp expertise together. It's not like this is all a bad way to study nature. It was a different way, or at least a different emphasis. And you see that, I've, tr I've traced this through with things like textbooks and problem sets and, and exams set for graduate students in physics, uh, again, largely in the US, but similar effects elsewhere that you see very soon after the Second World War, the kind of open-ended philosophical essay question being posed to PhD students in physics, those vanish. In fact, they catch some of these young PhD students by surprise because they've been looking at older exams from before the war and they were studying these kind of logical, juicy, uh, you know, uh, chestnuts. And, and suddenly they're not, they're not being quizzed on that. That's not how one advances uh, in the field. And, uh, and compounding that, again, in the UK, in the US, much more than in, in um, 
in other parts of, of, uh, of continental Europe at the time, there's an explosive growth in the number of physics students, partly because of the visibility after the war of these very dramatic defense projects like radar and the nuclear weapons. So physics grows faster than any other field of study in the United States. Enrollments grow across the board. They grow. Physics grows uh, twice as fast after, after the war. Uh, and, and similar kinds of, of runaway growth in physics uh, in the UK as well. I've looked at those numbers. And so now you have a compounding factor where the you're now teaching quantum theory to auditoria full of students, not a little seminar where you sit around the table and, and kick back and say, what does it mean to you? And so if you have to teach 300 students how to solve the Schrodinger equation, you're not as inclined to pause and ask 300 students to also write an essay on the post-Kantian implications of the thing in itself. You're not going to do quantum theory that way, right? So you have this, a series of, the, of these kind of shifts going on uh, that really start to, to remake what seems like um, a valuable way to try to do physics after the war. And that doesn't last forever either. And again, to, to make the story, um, to bring it, uh, uh, wind it up a bit more quickly. That, that, that ethos holds still, holds, holds fast for about another quarter century, but not forever. And the era of runaway exponential growth doesn't last forever, as, as everyone should have known it couldn't. Uh, and there's an enormous turnaround, huge setbacks, funding cutbacks, political turmoil, especially in the US, about why the Defense Department was funding so much basic research in physics. All kinds of things go, uh, go uh, a different way, go sort of sideways for physics. Enrollments drop uh, as quickly as they'd risen. So by the early 70s, now you have a, a new set of realities in, in what students think they want out of physics and what faculty feel like they can do in a classroom when it's back to a much more small uh, scale pedagogical uh, task. The textbooks begin putting in open-ended discussion questions and essay questions again. And it's in that era when small groups of people begin to come around to Bell's theorem, not the whole field. But some of them start to say, these questions are what drove us into physics in the first place. These big questions of what, what does it all mean? So those are kind of generational shifts. They don't happen overnight. Even a beautiful set of experiments like the Clauser and Espe experiments aren't enough to, to drive that shift. But they're starting, starting to, to be part of an equation that goes along with geopolitics, with changing nature of, of the higher education, with funding shifts that, that uh, change over a decade-long timescale. Lots of these things we have to put into the mix to try to make sense for these intellectual shifts to why a topic like quantum entanglement would eventually come again to seem so central to the field. Could this kind of thing happen again, you know, where a field becomes unfashionable or people think it's nonsense, not working on it, not worth your time to work on it? Um, could that happen again? And if so, you know, what do you think is the most likely field now where some modern day John Bell and John Clauser could be toiling away in relative obscurity on something that could be huge in the future? So I'll take the first part first because that's easier for an historian uh, because we're not required to be um, a fortune teller. So in the past, we can also look and see this has happened more than once and not only for topics like quantum entanglement. So we know it's not a, this was not an isolated instance, that we have demonstration that, that the number of these of times that this sort of thing has happened is, is bigger than one, even just again in the past few decades. 
Another uh, example that again seems so striking from where we sit today would be the study of gravitation and general relativity, including things like black holes and gravitational waves and, and the Big Bang and things that rightly get so many of us deeply excited and passionate today. For, for a long time, that had a similar kind of pendulum swing for the field. It's in fashion, it's out of fashion, it's considered not even physics, it comes back in. So it's not like this story happened only uh, with, say, foundations of quantum theory or quantum entanglement. So in that sense, we know it has happened more than once, and that suggests it could happen again. Now you ask the much more difficult question, what's, what are we overlooking now that we should all be giving a bit more attention to? And obviously, if I knew that, I'd, <laughs> I'd rush to try to work on it myself, and I don't know what it is. But I do think we want to be careful, maybe just a, a smidgen of intellectual humility, and keep ourselves open to the idea that this really can be happening and can happen again. And that doesn't mean that every single idea is equally worthwhile, but it does mean that we, we want to be remain open at least to the possibility. That's at least how I'd see it. David Kaiser, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by Oxford Instruments Nanoscience. Thanks to David Kaiser, Margaret Harris, and Mateen Durrani for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester looks at the uncertainty surrounding the UK's status in the Horizon Europe Research Funding Scheme and how this is affecting physicists working in the UK. You can find all the stories episodes on the Physics World website and also at your favourite podcast provider. Physics World.